Released to mixed reviews in May 1969, Midnight Cowboy made history in April 1970 by becoming, for a short time at least, the only X-rated film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. In October 1968, the Motion Picture Production Code, better known as the Hayes Code, was replaced with a new rating system designed to address a diversifying audience seeking new film content. The film's title is a phrase unique to a certain time, the 1960s, and a certain place, New York City, that refers to male gay prostitution. It was that subject matter that gave Midnight Cowboy the X rating. However, the studio behind the film, United Artists, were very concerned that the rating would severely hinder its commercial prospects, restricting the number of theatres as well as US cities it could play in. But it proved to be an unexpected hit with audiences, pulling in over $44 million at the box office, which, adjusted to inflation, would be over $307 million today. Even more unexpectedly, come Oscar time, it received seven nominations. Yet, despite that recognition, everyone involved in the picture, including producer Jerome Hellman, director John Schlesinger, writer Waldo Sold, as well as the agents for the two leads, John Voigt and Dustin Hoffman, were convinced that the X certificate would scare away the Conservative Academy. Think about it. Here was a film that in its content challenged the status quo, in its title derided America's central mythology, and in its dialogue mocked the Western's most iconic figure. I know enough to know that that great big dumb cowboy crap of yours don't appeal to nobody except every jackie on 42nd Street. That's faggot stuff. You want to call it by its name, that's strictly for fags. Uh, John Wayne, you want to tell me he's a fag? What might, just might, have been an influencing factor occurred two years earlier and on the opposite side of the country. In June 1967, Gregory Peck had been elected president of the Academy. Responding to the changing cultural climate in the United States, Peck began a drive to increase and diversify the demographic of the Academy's rather staid and ageing members, which would impact on the voting. Yet, come awards night, everyone was sure that the box office juggernaut, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, would take home all the gold. But when the envelopes were opened, Schlesinger, Hellman and Salt walked away with the statuettes. So it was in direct response to that win that the MPAA quickly reconsidered and revised the X rating they had initially given the film, and soon Midnight Cabo was playing in theatres under an OR certificate. That's the first goddamn time this thing ever quit on me. Think I'm lying to you? No. No, I don't think you're lying. I just had this funny image. I had this image of a um, policeman without his stick and a uh, bugler without his horn, etc., etc., etc. Midnight Cowboy is adapted from a book written in 1965 by James Leo Hurley. Hurley was a Navy veteran who, after his discharge, tried his hand in the arts, first with sculpting, then acting, before finally finding his niche as a writer. Along the way, he met and befriended Tennessee Williams, Christopher Isherwood and Anna East Nin. And while those writers often championed their characters' sexual orientation, Hurley's characters were a gallery of brittle, beaten down and often isolated individuals. Whether it be his 1958 play Blue Denim, or his novels All Fall Down from 1960, or The Season of the Witch from 1971, Hurley's protagonists are often drifters yearning for their own space in a world that refuses to accept them. Midnight Cowboy is consistent with that theme. But here is the thing. While the title clearly references the Western genre, it is to the musical that the story's trajectory makes more than a passing nod. 
The main character, Joe Buck, is a naive young man who, tired of washing dishes in his Texas backwater, heads to New York where he is certain his sexual allure will prove irresistible to the legions of lonely Manhattan women. Change a few descriptors and you have an ambitious young man who heads to New York where he hopes his tap-dancing talent will land him on the Broadway stage. But more than just musicals and talent, strange as it may sound, Hurley's Joe Buck bears a passing resemblance to a character created by Truman Capote in 1958. Here is Capote in 1963 giving a public reading of his book at the 92nd Street Y. I think he thinks I'm in the bathroom, not that I give a damn what he thinks, the hell with him. He'll get tired, he'll go to sleep. My God, he should. Eight martinis before dinner and enough wine to wash an elephant. Just like Joe Buck, Holly Golightly was born in Texas and went to New York to escape her past. Capote's novella is coy about Holly's sexual escapades. In fact, Capote refers to her as less a sex worker and more a geisha. Herlihy had no such qualms, and his explicit depiction of New York as a squalid jungle is a link to another, later, and much darker portrayal of the city. All the animals come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. In that respect, Midnight Cowboy is one of the key New York films. Los Angeles may be home to Hollywood, but when it comes to the movies, Manhattan is a cinematic city. With its sculpted skyline, avenues that run like canyons, and steam swirling up from the subways, it has the Statue of Liberty, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Empire State Building, Central Park, Times Square, Washington Square, Union Square, Greenwich Village, the Rockefeller Center, the Lincoln Center, Harlem, Chelsea, Soho, Ellis Island. It seems that there are dozens of cities offering endless images of the one city that never sleeps. Starting out on 42nd Street, it has given us a miracle on 34th Street. And since then, we have been out on the town, down on the waterfront, endured the seven-year itch, and then enjoyed the sweet smell of success. And that only brings us up to 1957. In the 60s, we stayed in the apartment, heard a West Side Story, walked barefoot in the park, met the odd couple, and cooed over Rosemary's baby. By the 1970s, we were trying to make the French connection with Shaft, Serpico, Annie Hall, Martin Scorsese, and the Corleones. With all that jazz, it is no wonder we were trading places and cross-dressing like Tootsie. But we didn't always do the right thing. No, we wanted fame to make a splash in Wall Street. We did, we made it big, we were moonstruck, and when Harry met Sally, Well, that's probably as good as it gets. Oh, God. Oh, yes! If Midnight Cowboy is one of the key New York films, in a curious way, it is also a key commentary on the Western genre. 1969 was a very big year for cowboys. July the 4th saw the American release of Sergio Leone's elegiac, almost epitaph epic, Once Upon a Time in the West. Morton once told me I could never be like him. Now I understand why. Wouldn't have bothered him knowing you were around somewhere alive. So you found out you're not a businessman after all. Just a man. An ancient race. Leone had designed his picture to once and for all close off the frontier. 
which is perhaps why, a few weeks earlier, on June the 19th, Sam Peckinpah had directed the Wild Bunch south across the border to Mexico. When you side with a man, you stay with him, and if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. We're finished. All of us. And then later, on September the 24th, George Roy Hill sent Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid even further south to Bolivia. You know, it could be worse. You get a lot more for your money in Bolivia. I, I checked on it. What could they have here that you could possibly want to buy? But earlier, on July the 11th, John Wayne showed he was still made of true grit. When that posse thinned out, I, I turned old Bo around and taking them reins in my teeth, I charged them boys firing two <laughs> Navy Sixes. <laughs> they must have all been married men that loved their families because they scattered and run for home. For all that machismo, you will be forgiven for thinking that John Schlesinger, a British-born Jewish homosexual who had graduated from Oxford with a degree in English literature and whose passions extended to Italian opera, was neither qualified to examine the Hollywood Western nor intent on reviving it. But Schlesinger had already enthusiastically read Hurley's novel while in London, where it had been recommended to him by a friend. Schlesinger then suggested it to his producer, Joe Janney, as a future project. At that stage, Janney had produced two pictures for Schlesinger, Billy Lyre and Darling, for which both Schlesinger and Janney had secured Academy Award nominations. But when Janney read the novel, he gasped, wondering whether Schlesinger was trying to sabotage his own career. At that stage, Schlesinger was not yet fully out, but he was drawn in to the plight of the novel's two central characters. With Janney still unconvinced of the project's viability, Schlesinger then approached American producer Jerome Hellman. At that point in his career, Hellman had only two credits to his name, The World of Henry Orient starring Peter Sellers and A Fine Madness with Sean Connery, neither of which left any impression at the box office. Still, Hellman felt confident enough he could secure the talents of none other than Gore Vidal to tackle the adaptation. But when Vidal read the novel, he dismissed it as junk, offering Stead to adapt one of his own books. Schlesinger and Hellman declined and then made what initially appeared to be a foolish decision. They approached Waldo Sold. Sold had begun his career back in the 1930s with meteoric success when, aged just 24, MGM produced his very first screenplay, The Bride Wore Red. With the likes of Nathaniel West and F. Scott Fitzgerald as his drinking buddies, Sold then wrote scripts for such A-list stars as William Holden, Burt Lancaster and Robert Mitchum. But by the early 50s, he fell afoul of the House Committee of Un-American Activities, stalking Hollywood studios. His career all but petered out, surviving on mere TV gigs, writing under the name of Mel Davenport. Can we see a pattern here? Schlesinger, Hellman and Sold all view themselves as outsiders. And that is what Midnight Cowboy is, a film about two men who, initially, could hardly be more different. Yet, through their experiences of rejection, bond together in the most unusual and profoundly sad way. As the story unfolds, it addresses the then toxic topics of male sexuality, male intimacy and male trauma. All with such explicitness, sympathy and power that by the time it reaches its very damning conclusion, it is offered up a critique of American masculinity. Okay, go ahead. Come on, take a look. Don't rush me, boy. I'll take your time here. Get myself primed up. Like I was turned on a charm for some pretty little blonde lady, you know. And then when I'm feeling cool and good, I'll spin around. 
There you are, you handsome devil, you. Not bad. Not bad. What a cowboy. But it wasn't just the content that divided the critics and started the Academy back in 1969. It was the way Schlesinger treated the content. Schlesinger had burst onto the international scene in 1962 when his kitchen sink drama, A Kind of Loving, won the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival. It was Schlesinger's very first film. Yet clearly, he showed he had already absorbed the tenets of the Italian neorealists Lucchino Visconti, Roberto Rossellini and Vittorio De Sica. Then, with his next film, Billy Liar, an adaptation of Keith Waterhouse's tragic comic novel, he incorporated the innovative editing, flash cuts and narrative ellipses of the French New Wave, especially Annie's Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7 and Alan René's Hiroshima Mon Amour and Last Year at Marienbad. Midnight Cowboy is a fusion of those disparate styles. However, knitting them together proved difficult. The rough cut simply didn't work, so Schlesinger bought over from England Jim Clark, who had edited his two previous pictures, Darling and Far From The Madding Crowd. Unable to secure a union card, Clark had to settle for the curious credit of creative consultant. But it was Clark who recut many sequences, adroitly mixing Joe Buck's obscure past with his vivid fantasies. In terms of the visuals, Schlesinger engaged first-time cinematographer Adam Hollander. Born in Poland, Hollander had moved to the United States in the mid-1960s, but had not been able to get any work. It was only through the recommendation of Roman Polanski, who had met Hollander when they were both students at the Vodge Film School, that Hollander came to Schlesinger's attention. Together, the two brought a fresh and unapologetic eye to late 60s New York, capturing the flourishing bohemian attitude while simultaneously highlighting Manhattan's growing decay. And the key to that fusion was found by appropriating the avant-garde techniques Andy Warhol was developing at his factory. In particular, Warhol's 1965 film, My Hustler, which starred Paul America as a young pro trading with older men. What are you doing now? I mean, in the city. Well, actually, I'm employed right now, trying to find a job. But what influenced Schlesinger the most was an obscure film from the then Yugoslavia. Released in 1967 and directed by Zhivagin Pavlovich, When I Am Dead and Gone told the sad story of Zima Barka, a young worker in a small factory town in Serbia who heads to Belgrade with big dreams of becoming a pop star. Rarely screened in the West back in the 1960s, it isn't all that easy to access now, which is why we must be thankful to the movie streaming platform. Access it there and you will find it is also the key in understanding Yugoslavia's briefly lived liberalism, known as the Black Wave. as those visual and editorial styles may be, what pulls the film away from despair and leans it into romanticism is the soundtrack. Throughout post-production, Schlesinger had been using for the temp track Bob Dylan's epic ballad. Said I'd lead you the which goes a long way in explaining the melancholia John Barry delivered for the score.
Dylan had been approached to write the theme song, but what he delivered came too late and anyway didn't fit with what Schlesinger wanted. Whatever colours you have in your mind i show them to you and you see them shine So for a while, Schlesinger considered Randy Newman. Cold grey buildings Where a hill should be Steel and concrete Closing in on me Then Schlesinger approached Harry Nielsen. I'll say goodbye to all my sorrow And by tomorrow I'll be on my way I guess the Lord must be in New York City But again, that didn't capture the tone Schlesinger was looking for. So in the end, he settled for another Nielsen number but one written by Fred Neal. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind Who ever would have thought that a film about gay male prostitution that fused together the styles of neorealism, the Nouvelle Vague, acid-drenched avant-gardism and an art movement from behind the Iron Curtain could possibly end up being an American classic. One so culturally, historically and aesthetically significant that it is now registered with the US Library of Congress. Would you believe that? 